We'll hear argument now in number 92-166, Keene Corporation against the United States. Uh, Mr. Toronto. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case involves the meaning of 28 U.S.C. Section 1500, which says that the Court of Federal Claims shall not have jurisdiction over a claim against the United States if the plaintiff has pending in another court another case against the government or its agents for or in respect to that claim. The Federal Circuit, expressly repudiating long-settled precedent, held that Section 1500 automatically requires dismissal whenever the plaintiff had pending sometime during its suit another action growing out of the same transaction or operative facts. When you say repeating long, repudiating long-standard, uh, long-standing precedent, Mr. Toronto, you mean uh, Federal Circuit or Court of Claims precedent, right? Yes, yes, that's right. And it required dismissal even if the actions had to be pursued separately and even if the other action is over. <coughs> Based on this new rule, Petitioner Keene had its cases dismissed after 10 years of pretrial proceedings were completed, denying Keene a hearing on its claims based on the government's sale of asbestos, its requirement of asbestos in products it's purchased, and its manner of operating shipyards. Our position is that the Federal Circuit misconstrued Section 1500 in two respects, and that two long-standing constructions of 1500 should be reinstated. First, two suits are not for or in respect to the same claim, where Congress has insisted that the claims in the two suits are different by demanding that they must be brought separately. And second, by its plain terms, the statute does not apply after the plaintiff no longer has, pen has pending any other suit. Now, on the first position, I want to make four points. The first is that it was settled law in the Court of Claims and the Federal Circuit, which are the only courts, aside from this court, that could ever address this question, for more than a quarter of a century that when Congress has declared that two separate rights of action must be litigated in two different courts, the court should not turn around and read 1500 as saying that the two suits are really for in respect to the same claim. On what general principle of law do you base this argument, Mr. Toronto? I mean, we don't ordinarily review court of claims or federal circuit precedents. No, I think that, that while well, stare decisis in its strict terms perhaps applies only to this court's review of its own precedent. Nevertheless, because stare decisis is a policy-based um, doctrine, we, the same... We wouldn't take a case here, I don't think, to hear it argued that the Ninth Circuit had failed to follow stare decisis in connection with the Ninth Circuit precedent. No, I think, I think that's right. But this, I think, presents two unique circumstances. One is that the issue of 1500's interpretation is unique to the Federal Circuit. There can't be a lower court conflict. And as a consequence, all of the reliance interests, both of litigants like Keene and of Congress in legislating in the area, must necessarily look to established law in that circuit um, to, to uh, guide litigants and guide Congress. And it's for that reason that we think that cases like the Kasman line of cases demand special respect. But I, you would still... Uh you would still say that even if there had, well, hadn't been a uh, precedent uh, until this one, that the Court of Appeals just had it wrong. Yes, I think that's right. The principle and that... Since, um, s since it would be the only court uh, to construe that statute, uh, uh, you couldn't wait for a conflict. 
That, that's right. The, the reading that the, court of, that the Court of Claims and the Federal Circuit gave to the statute for a quarter century, in fact, we think reflects the most natural reading of 1500's language. Are you in any position to make an argument that Congress might be deemed to have accepted that uh, interpretation? Was there any reenactment or amendment that might have picked it up if we accepted the theory that, uh, given the peculiarities of claims and Fed Circuit jurisdiction, Congress might be deemed to accept that? Yes, we do have a, a version of, of that argument. In 1982, Congress took a broad look at the whole set of statutes governing what was then the Court of Claims, transformed that court into a trial court, the Claims Court, and the Federal Circuit, um, and reenacted 1500, merely changing the name of the court to which it applied. By that time, the statute had been um, consistently construed in both of the ways that we suggest, and we think it is an appropriate inference that had it been construed otherwise, its quite draconian consequences would in fact have led Congress to take a second look at it. The fact that it had been construed so as not to deprive litigants of rights um, is, is, I think, the best explanation for why no real issue was made of 1500 when it was reenacted in 1982. Well, did Congress overhaul the statutes governing uh, the uh, Court of Claims and the uh, Federal Circuit uh, in 1982, other than just do what was necessary to, to create the new court? It, it, it did make a number of substantive amendments in looking through the entire range of statutes. It added certain limited jurisdiction to the now the claims court to provide certain kinds of equitable relief that it couldn't have provided before. It provided a special transfer statute to ensure against precisely the kind of loss of rights through filing in the wrong court that is at issue here. And it um, also made a number of substantive amendments that governed um, other aspects of what used to be the Court of Claims and, and also the Court of Customs and Patents. Uh, amendments you say that weren't occasioned by the creation of the new court. Yes, that's right. There was a more general review in 1982 of the statutory regime governing um, suits against the United States, and in particular in, in the Court of Claims. When the statute asks if a second suit is for in respect to the claim in a first suit, it is naturally understood, we think, as targeting repetitive litigation, situations where two suits are brought when there really should be one. But that is not the situation. There is no repetition when two suits are brought on different legal rights that Congress has said must be litigated separately. This is exactly the rule of claim preclusion law, which we think is the obvious place to turn to in defining when two suits should be treated as for or in respect to the same claim. But you wouldn't need a special statute, would you, if all Congress wanted was the application of claim preclusion law, that that would apply without any statute? Certainly other courts throughout the country apply it without having a special statute. Right. What 1500 do, does is apply before any judgment is reached. Claim preclusion law only kicks in once there is a judgment in a first suit. What 1500 does is to say a plaintiff cannot proceed in two different forms up to the time of judgment, which claim preclusion would say nothing about. Um, it protects the government against that problem. So 1500 performs a role in addition to claim preclusion law. But we nevertheless With that interpretation that you've just explained, uh, 
have satisfied the congressional concern with the cotton litigation that prompted this statute? I think it would. Um, let me say first that, that I think that it would be a mistake in any event, whatever that 1868 legislative history concerning the cotton claims spoke, uh, said, to carry that forward to a new statute in a new legal landscape to control the interpretation of this. But even on its own terms, the only thing that one can tell from the 1868 history is that Congress wanted to relax one condition of claim preclusion law, and that is the condition of mutuality of the parties. Nothing about the 1868 history suggested that two claims, aside from mutuality of the parties, that would otherwise be the same, would be within the statute. The cotton claims would, under the best view that we can discover of 19th century um, race judicata law, in fact have been the same had they been against the same defendant. One of the tests for establishing sameness of claims was the so-called same evidence rule. If one, if the evidence in one case would be enough to support the claim in the other case, the same evidence would suffice and the claims would, would be treated the same. And a common law conversion claim would, under that test, be the same as the statutory conversion claim, which added simply the element of loyalty, because the same evidence that proved loyalty and conversion would, as, it, as with a lesser-included offense, prove conversion. Mr. The- Toronto, um, it seems to me that it's possible that the precedent in the Court of Claims decisions is not quite as uniform as you suggest. Um, the British American Tobacco case, uh, I think the Court of Claims held that the word claim refers to the fact that the facts existing and operating in both cases are the same. And there's a similar holding in the Los Angeles Shipbuilding and Dry Dock case. And, and so I'd like you to explain to me whether the precedent really was as uniform as you suggest. Um, I, I, think, I think it was when you take time into account. Um, like any other body of precedent, um, at a certain point, earlier decisions are reinterpreted and perhaps even um, altered. The early interpretation of 1500 or its predecessor in the Court of Claims took this broader view. What happened then in 1956 with the Casman case was that the Court recognized that where Congress has insisted that claims be brought in two different forms, they should not be treated the same. But Los Angeles shipbuilding was decided after. I think within, within a year of, yes. uh, of that. And, and, but shortly after that, it became the established rule, repeated over and over again um, in the Court of Claims, that if a litigant was forced into two separate suits, they were not to be treated as the same. And I certainly don't know of, of a single instance, um, and I don't think the government has cited one, where any litigant was thrown out <laughs> under 1500 after Los Angeles Shipyard, which may simply have not fully appreciated Kasman. Um, but in any event, since um, the early 60s, for uh, 30 years, I don't think there's a single case where that rule failed to be applied, where a litigant lost rights by virtue of, of um, bringing in two separate suits claims that Congress has said had to be brought in two separate suits. Well, has the, has the CA Fed uh, <clears throat> up to now recognized the rule, that rule you're talking about? It first moved away from that rule in a predecessor of this case, the Johns Manville case, and then clarified that it really meant Did it ever accept it? The CA Fed. It did in, I think, the Boston Five Cents Savings Bank case, if I'm recalling right. When was that decided? That was um, 
I don't remember exactly, in the mid-80s, I think. 1988. But by the time the CA Fed was created, uh, the, you, you say the law in the Court of Claims was pretty clear. Yes, the Court of Claims, the Kasman decision had been cited over and over, and it had been, it had been specifically applied in 1976 in the Allied Materials case to circumstances even where money damages were sought in, under two different claims, so that the type of relief was not the only condition for distinguishing claims. Mr. Toronto, under the uh, civil version of the same evidence rule that you were referring to a moment ago, uh, would, uh, would two suits uh, simply, uh, based on at least a community of fact, but one sounding in tort and one sounding in contract, uh, have been precluded as simultaneous suits? Um, in the 19th century, the answer is probably not. There is always some difference in evidence, as there would be here with the tort and contract claims, if only because there are different legal elements. Um, in the 19th century, this, that same evidence test probably wouldn't have applied, but on the other hand, there would have been no real need for it because... Because the, you had the mutuality, yeah. Well, mutuality, and the 19, in the 19th century, race judicata insisted on that something much closer to the legal theory as opposed to the transaction-based mm-hmm. test. Now, let me, let me say that um, under this reading, this long-established reading of 1500, um, the statute performs two very limited but sensible functions. And these were, in fact, the functions that when the Justice Department last year opposed repeal of 1500, it, it um, told Congress it performed. The Justice Department did not say that, it, that the provision applied to the sequencing of merely related claims. It said one function was to bar forum shopping in those cases that are within the concurrent jurisdiction of the Court of Federal Claims and the District Court. A plaintiff, which includes all tax refund cases and little Tucker Act cases and perhaps some others. The plaintiff can't just test out the two forums up to the time of judgment and see which judge is going to look more favorably upon its claim. Little Tucker Act is district court under 10000 or whatever it is. Yes, up, up to $10,000, all contract claims, constitutional claims, etc. The second function is to preclude simultaneous suits where there is not concurrent jurisdiction, but the plaintiff has filed the case in two different forums. And in there, the statute simply bars the plaintiff from proceeding in the Court of Federal Claims until the district court's lack of jurisdiction has been established, as it sometimes requires some years of litigation to do. And these functions are obviously modest, but as I say, the Justice Department explained why 1500 should be kept when it opposed repeal to Congress by reference only to those functions and not to the much more draconian function that it suggests today of sequencing merely related suits. And and this was after the uh, DA Fed's uh, change of theory? It was. Mm -hmm. The final reason, then, in support of this first position is precisely that the draconian consequences of the Federal Circuit's new version. The fact is that, like Keene, many litigants seeking redress against the government must file in separate cases, whether they have tort and contract claims or, as many of the amici in this case point out, they have a statutory challenge to some government action and also a taking challenge. The regular and unavoidable effect of the government's position requiring sequencing of these suits is the loss of many litigants' Tucker Act claims, either through the sheer delay of postponing their adjudication, perhaps for years, as in this case it would be seven or eight years, or even worse, through the expiration of statutes of limitations if equitable tolling is unavailable. Let me turn to the... How, how many different cases did your client have pending 
in connection with this asbestos litigation? Well, um, we had two cases in the Court of Claims, um, which were then consolidated, one involving the contract claims, one involving the takings claims. In other courts, we had a omnibus tort claim with a with a. Few when you say in other courts, would you be specific? Yes, the, there was the the initial omnibus um, FTCA action was brought in the Southern District of New York. After that was thrown out, the same action was tried in the District of Columbia. Essentially, exactly the same complaint. Why was, was it thrown out of the uh, District Court in New York? Um, essentially, because the administrative notice requirement of the FTCA imposes a specificity requirement that the court found um, Keene could not meet as to each of the underlying tens of thousands of claims against the government. And did, did you, in effect, try to relitigate that in the District of Columbia? Yes, after filing a new, a new series of administrative notices, which were subsequently also filed, found to be jurisdictionally inadequate. So you went back and tried to cure, basically, the defect that the yes. District Court in New York had Yes, that's right. And the, the one other suit that I... Uh, and, that I and unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully, that's right. Keene has never had a hearing on its tort claims um, because of this jurisdictional problem or because of this ruling on the contract claims. The one other suit that I didn't mention is, briefly, um, in one of the suits brought against Keene, there was a third-party action um, uh, in pleading the United States, and then that was voluntarily dismissed in order to to proceed on that issue in, in these other suits. The second point, the second position, is that Section 1500, regardless of the scope of the claim language, has no application once the other suit in another court is over. And that's so whatever the court should do when, section, when 1500 is raised while another case is pending. Again, I have three, I think, simple points for this. First, by its terms, the statute applies only when the plaintiff in the Court of Federal Claims has pending another suit. It simply does not come into play, let alone require dismissal, when no other suit is pending. Second, even the government's version of the policy of 1500, protection against simultaneous dual-related litigation, has no application once there is no dual litigation. After any other suit outside the Court of Federal Claims is over, there is simply no dual litigation of any sort to protect against. But I suppose that the 1500 is couched as a jurisdictional statute, and normally you would think that means the Court of Federal Claims had no jurisdiction. Justice O'Connor, I think that that, um, there are two separate questions to, to address. One is whether at a time when another suit is pending, the jurisdiction label automatically requires dismissal. No issue was raised as to that here. The other issue, which is the issue here, is what happens if there was earlier in the proceeding a jurisdictional defect that is no longer present. And what this Court's decision in Newman-Green establishes, what was established even before, is that even as to a pure jurisdictional provision, the existence of an earlier jurisdictional defect does not mean that the case shouldn't go forward. In fact, the Court said the case should go forward once that defect is cured. That's exactly what we have here, even on the assumption that 1500's jurisdiction language has to be read as making it a pure jurisdictional provision. We have a situation where, even on the assumption that there was a jurisdictional defect earlier in the litigation, by the time the question of dismissal arose, there was no longer that jurisdictional defect. And as in Newman-Green, we think it is perfectly appropriate. Indeed, it would be unfair. You say by the time it arose... Yes. Uh, does that mean, are you saying then by the time the government made a motion? 
Um, yes, that's right. By the time Why wouldn't it arise at the very beginning of, of the second lawsuit? Well, I'm, I'm just saying that as a, as a practical matter, the issue was not brought to anybody's attention here for eight years during this litigation. Well, but if it's a jurisdictional matter, ordinarily that wouldn't make any difference. That's not something that the government can waive. Right, but, but um, in Newman Green itself, had the parties raised at the outset of the litigation the fact that there was a non-diverse party, then had that defect not been cured, of course, dismissal would have been required. What this court said in Newman Green, confirming many lower courts' views, is that even though there was no jurisdiction because of the non-diverse party at the day the, f- the suit was filed and for years during the litigation, once that defect was cured, the case should and can go forward. Mr. That- Toronto, I, I thought Newman Green was sort of a, if not a dodo bird, at least an exception I thought the normal rule was otherwise, that uh, uh, if you don't have jurisdiction at the outset, you can't uh, patch it up later. Do you know any other situation other than Newman Green in which we've allowed absence of jurisdiction to be re- that, that jurisdiction that did not exist at the outset of the case to be remedied later? Justice Scalia, I don't know of any other example either way on that question. I've been uh, uh, looking for other situations where the question of a, uh, of a jurisdictional defect that existed earlier in the proceeding, but now coming to an end, has, uh, has been presented. And I don't know of any situation except the Newman-Green one. And there I think the rationale does properly extend to other situations, including this one, that a certain measure of practicality is, is, is necessary. And once the jurisdictional defect is, is over, there's no reason to dismiss the suit. You, you, do you think if I'm not a citizen of, uh, of a diverse state and, and then later uh, uh, move to a diverse state, uh, the suit becomes retroactively validated? Well, there is. A diversity suit, I mean? Um, there, that, that has not been the traditional rule for measuring the, the uh, time at which diversity must, must arise. Yeah, I, that's, that's all I'm saying. I always assume that the traditional rule is you look to the outset of the litigation and that Newman Green is was noteworthy because it was an exception to that. Right, but I, th- I think Newman Green confirmed what was a, a long-standing recognition in the lower courts that a jurisdictional defect, even if it required dismissal when it was present, did not necessarily require dismissal once the defect was, was over. Toronto, you, <clears throat> if there's a suit uh, pending in the, another court when you file a suit in the uh, Court of Claims, and <clears throat> the Court of Claims uh, uh, dismisses it even though uh, at the time of the dismissal uh, the other suit has uh, itself been dismissed, which is the the case here, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Suppose it dismisses it. uh, uh, Can you then file another suit in the Court of Claims? I would... uh, I would think you could. Yes, that's right. But then, but except for what? Except statute of limitations. For the statute of limitations, and and the question is is an open one, although the claims court has recently um, addressed it favorably. The question is an open one whether equitable tolling would be available in that. And and, uh, you say the court of claims has what? The claims court, in a decision that came down just a couple of weeks ago, held in exactly these circumstances that equitable tolling would be available. So if you lose this suit uh, here, if we we affirm that the CA Fed, uh, you might be able to sue again. We might. We might, although I must say it would take no doubt several years of litigation to dis- for, the, for the issue to, to go back to the federal circuit to decide whether the claims court, which is now just the trial court, um, was correct in that particular decision. Um, 
Mr. Toronto, the uh, Tucker Act has a rather unusual formulation. It says that the Court of Claims shall have jurisdiction to enter judgment in any case, um, rather than shall have jurisdiction over a case. Does anything turn on, on that? Well, we do, it does we do. seem to help you in that it speaks uh, toward the jurisdiction at the end of the case, but it's a little odd to talk about jurisdiction at the end of the case. We, I mean, I, I do think that it does help. I don't want to place too much weight on it, but it does suggest that 1500 appearing amidst numerous other provisions that talk about jurisdiction to enter judgment um, properly can be interpreted to focus on the presence of any jurisdictional defect at the time judgment is entered. Judgment, the entry of judgment often being described as, as the single distinguishing characteristic of, of what makes um, a court court as opposed to anything else. But, but, but how then do we explain its authority at the outset? Well, for one thing, its authority at the outset, um, in, uh, before 1948, Section 1500 didn't use the word jurisdiction at all. It was a provision about what should happen in the filing and the prosecution of a claim. And there, I think, the language helps us considerably because um, one would not ordinarily think that a rule like that should automatically carry the rigid dismissal um, result as a matter of remedy. There would still be an open question about what the remedy is for the violation of a filing rule. And it's that flexibility as to remedy that, in fact, the Court of Claims um, itself regularly applied, starting in the 1960s, time and time again, to merely require a stay of the case or a suspension of the case. Now, that rule says two things. One is what is at issue here, which is that the case can go forward once the other, once the defect is, is uh, no longer present. The other thing that it says, which is not present here, is that even at the time the defect is present, dismissal is not required. Mere suspension will do. And I should note that in the Pennsylvania Railroad case, that is exactly what this court did. It reversed a court of claims dismissal of a case and ordered the court of claims merely to suspend the proceeding while another case um, in district court was was uh, proceeding. Mr. Toronto, wasn't the original language of this, that, um, I, I can't find it in the briefs, wasn't bring or prosecute? Yes, that's right. And doesn't that cut against the interpretation that you're... That you're giving? No, I don't I mean, think it, so. It I was think changed, but without any, any indication that the change was meant to be a substantive one. Right. I think all that that language does is make clear that there is an impropriety in the original filing or the prosecution. Two questions would remain. One is merely suspending the case. Does that mean it's still being prosecuted if there are no litigation burdens being imposed on the government? And the other question is what would be the remedy for a filing violation? As to both, I think, the case would still be proper that uh, that mere suspension would be would be required to say though that the statute was violated at some point but you just say bygones are bygones yes if, if it was violated when it was brought but it's no longer being brought it's only being prosecuted and that's okay if the filing took place at a time when the statutory condition was met then the statute was violated at that time let me just refer finally to the arguments in our briefs for non for both non-retroactivity and equitable tolling in the event this Court adopts the Federal Circuit's interpretation, both of which rest on the fundamental unfairness of overruling settled law more than a decade into this litigation and depriving Keene of any day in court on its claims against the government. If the Court has no further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Toronto. Uh, Mr. Wallace, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. 
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The text of Section 1500 speaks in the language of subject matter jurisdiction. It unmistakably excludes a certain category of cases from the subject matter jurisdiction of the Court of Federal Claims. That Court's sole function is to hear claims against the United States for monetary awards and occasionally certain ancillary relief. These are claims against the sovereign. And just as waivers of sovereign immunity are to be strictly construed, an express exclusion from the waiver of sovereign immunity that Congress has enacted should be fairly construed to accomplish its purpose of restricting the waiver of sovereign immunity. So much of the argument that has been made on behalf of the petitioner in this case that claims that Congress has authorized might be foreclosed by this provision overlooks the fact that this provision is an exclusion on the waiver of sovereign immunity. And to the extent this provision applies, the claims are not authorized against the United States. From the beginning in 1868, when the predecessor statute was enacted, the central purpose was clear, and that was to prevent simultaneous litigation of related claims. The cotton claimants were unable to bring the two categories of claims that Congress focused on in the same court. That's the common sense of it. Petitioner has theorized about whether it could have brought, whether those claimants could have brought the cases in the same court if the claims against the federal officers could have been brought against the United States. But there was no possibility of doing that at that time. The Federal Tort Claims Act was not enacted until 1946. So from the beginning, it was recognized that the paradigm class of cases that the statute was designed to apply to were cases in which related claims had to be brought in two different courts. And the purpose of the statute was... Mr. Wallace, you say related, brought in two different courts. Wasn't the reason that the cotton claimants sued the officials away from Washington not so much that Congress said they couldn't sue in the court of claims, but that venue requirements, if you're going to sue a local official who converted the cotton, you would have to sue where that official was found? Well, that certainly was the practical reason why most of those cases were brought outside of Washington. But if they had been brought in Washington, it could not have been in the court of claims, which would not have had jurisdiction over suits against the officers. In those days, the officers had to be sued in their individual capacity for having committed a tort while they were supposedly conducting their official duties. 
So you say even if there hadn't been the venue problem, there would have been a jurisdictional problem. Exactly so. They would have had to be brought in the district court here rather than in the court of claims. So from its outset, it was recognized that it applied to force claimants to choose between two different related claims. I just want to be sure I understand why they had to be brought in different suits. If the recovery was going to take the form of recovery against the officer individually, it would have to be brought in the district court. But the amount of money recovered would be the same in either event, would it not? That is correct, Mr. Judge. So it's just a question of really a formal procedural difference between the two suits. They're really sued on the same basic set of facts. Well, they were being sued on the same basic set of facts. And would have gotten precisely the same relief in terms of dollars, at least. The judgment would read differently because in one case it would read against the individual and the other against the United States. That's correct. It would be paid by someone different. Wouldn't it have depended? You could have gotten a judgment, I suppose, against an insolvent official, and you wouldn't have gotten any money as a result of it. Whereas you get a judgment against the government, and hopefully it's not insolvent. At least for purposes of paying judgments. That's quite correct, Mr. Chief Justice. So the one significant change that was made in the statute was made to carry this function forward after the enactment of the Federal Tort Claims Act in 1946, in which these suits, the tort claims that formerly had to be made against officers, could now be made against the United States. And so in the 1948 edition of the Judicial Code, as the revisers redrafted this, they added suits against the United States in any other court to the original language that referred only to suits against officers in any other court. So the substance was being carried forward. In fact, the revisers' notes said this was nothing but a change in phraseology. The substance of precluding putting the government to simultaneous defense of the tort suit in the district courts and the claim in the then Court of Claims was carried forward. The plaintiff could not force that choice upon the government. Now, in the rehearing petition that the government filed in this case in the Federal Circuit, I think the government articulated two important telling points that I believe led the court in the Federal Circuit to reexamine its series of precedents in this matter. The first point that I want to recount to the court has to do with the purpose of the rule and why the rule applied to the situation that Keene had presented to the court. And as the government put it in the rehearing petition, the rule propounded by the panel, whereby if the claimant dismissed its district court case before the 
Court of Federal Claims ruled on the motion to dismiss, then it would have been all right for the two suits to go forward simultaneously. Uh, one of the alternative grounds proposed by petitioner today. Uh, what we said in the rehearing petition was the rule propounded by the panel would permit a claimant to tie up government resources in two courts simultaneously for an indefinite period of time while the claimant continues to assess its relative chances of recovery in one forum or the other. As long as the claimant bails out of the district court before the claims court actually rules on the Section 1500 motion, the claimant can do, as plaintiffs did here, precisely what Congress intended to preclude. Now, in this particular case, the suit that was initially pending in the district court was a third-party complaint against the United States involving uh, just one of these asbestos claims. But we have to be aware that even though the suit in the later brought in the Court of Federal Claims against the government was an omnibus suit involving many similar claims, we have to be aware that modern rules of collateral estoppel would allow an individual suit of that sort to be used as a stalking horse and if it looked as if uh, that suit would succeed, uh, it could go forward and uh, then be used uh, for its possible collateral estoppel effect against the government uh, under this court's decision in United States against Stauffer well, of course Chemical the, Company. Of course, the theory that it would tie up government resources in two suits uh, doesn't hold uh, water particularly. Uh, your latter point of collateral estoppel got some. But I would suppose there are two suits going on in two different courts over the roughly the same set of facts. One of the courts is going to stay the stay uh, uh, and, to, and let the other court go forward. That, that could happen if okay, both then, courts so are aware of it. One suit will be quiescent and the other one won't. Uh, once once there is an awareness. I would assume the government would want to stay one of them. Well, the government is not always aware of the overlap of these claims promptly. Um, and uh, this, you know, even though there may be other remedies that the government could turn to now, and there certainly are arguments that have been put to Congress and that will continue to be put to Congress about whether Section 1500 should be repealed or revised. The fact is Congress proposed a remedy of barring uh, a, a, initially it said at the plaintiff from filing or prosecuting in the uh, Court of Claims and now it says that the Court of Claims shall not have jurisdiction if there is a suit pending on a related claim in any other court. If your view prevails, uh, may the government uh, collaterally attack uh, final judgments in the Court of Claims? Uh, Well, uh, based on this new theory? That possibility has been raised in some briefs, amicus curiae. We um, uh, have not uh, thus far attempted to do that. 
It would depend on the particular uh, situation in a case and whether it would come within the uh, Federal Circuit's rules for collateral attacks within two years of the judgment. Um, uh, well, I, I take it that a judgment that uh, lacks subject matter jurisdiction is void, and if that issue has at least not been litigated or raised by the parties, it's open to you to attack it. But there, there are rules of repose, and, and under the, the uh, Federal Circuit's rules, uh, uh, that kind of challenge has to be raised within two years of the judgment, is my understanding. I, I can't say that I've focused uh, in detail on that question. I... I I do think... certainly do not negate the possibility, I think. I, I could not do that, uh, Mr. Justice. That uh, remains the determination of future litigation. Have you got the second uh, reason you gave the... Well, the second point in the rehearing petition um, which was that the rule adopted by the panel in focusing on the time that the motion was ruled on was logically inconsistent with one of the exceptions that the old Court of Claims had developed uh, to uh, Section 1500, the so-called TCON exception, which focused exclusively on the time of filing complaints and said that so long as the complaint is filed first in the, uh, what was then the claims court, and then is filed uh, in the district court, it's all right for both cases to go ahead simultaneously. It's only if another suit was already pending in a district court when the uh, claim was filed in uh, the old court of claims that, f that 1500 would be applied. And our point was that there was a logical inconsistency between these two doctrines, and we could not say that either of them was consistent with the language or purpose of Section 1500, and therefore uh, we agreed with the dissenting opinion of Judge Mayer on the panel that the court might be well advised to review its precedents uh, uh, under 1500 altogether because they had strayed so far from uh, the language and purpose of the statute. Section 1500, Mr. Wolf, doesn't affect cl claims pending in any court other than the Court of Claims, does it? That is correct, Your Honor. In other words, one could have pending several actions in different district courts throughout the country, and they would be in no way affected by Section 1500. It, it is an exclusion of jurisdiction only in the Court of Federal Claims. That, that is what it in terms does. It provides an exception to any jurisdiction the Court of Federal Claims otherwise would have. If these Mr. Related Wallace, claims are pending. At the time that, uh, that, that Keene 1 was filed, uh, the only suit then pending was the single action, which you said, the counterclaim that you said could be, or, or the cross claim that you said could be used as a stalking horse, right? Well, that involved one possibly. Sing, that involved one single action. That is correct. Right? Now, would that have precluded suit in the claims court? Yeah. On the other 
999 or 9,999 actions? That is both our position and the ruling of the Court of Federal Claims in this case, which held that Keene's suit was barred and did not come within any of the established exceptions. Uh, Well, it doesn't involve the same cause of action, even remotely. It's a a totally different cause of action. It arises from a common nucleus of operative fact, even though it's only a particle of that nucleus. Common nucleus of, I don't think it arises out of a common nucleus of operative fact at all. The government did one thing in, in one contract. And it happened to do the same thing in a totally different contract. Why, why is well, that a That contract? particular one was among the hundreds that were uh, brought before uh, the uh, Court of Federal Claims. Well, it seems it, to it me it's a, it's, it's a common legal issue, but I don't see, I don't see how it's the same uh, within the language of the statute. It, it's a common legal issue between the same parties, and it, it also is a common issue with respect to the same facts. And if you can break away individual ones into other courts, uh, you're in a situation where the government could be subjected uh, to collateral estoppel effect. That's exactly what happened in the Stouffer chemical case where uh, the company had first sued uh, to quash a, uh, a warrant to inspect its facility in uh, Wyoming and had prevailed in the Tenth Circuit and then when the government uh, attempted to enforce a, a similar warrant with private contractors to enforce a facility of the same company in Tennessee, this court held that the company, because it was the same parties, the company was entitled to a collateral estoppel benefit of that judgment. Uh, so the the fact that it it, it um, is not a, a coextensive claim uh, initially really doesn't change that. Of course, collateral estoppel goes issue by issue. You can have a lot of issues uh, involved in a single claim. So I don't see how the fact that you'd be collaterally estopped as to certain issues in one claim necessarily means that for purposes of this statute, it's it's the same claim, right? Uh, because it's a claim in respect to. It, it's, it, uh, what, what the statute says is that the Court of Federal Claims shall not have jurisdiction of any claim for or in respect to which the plaintiff has pending in un- any, any other court, any suit or process. You say if it involves any issue that's involved in that, cl- if, if the other suit involves any issue that is involved in that claim and that would be collaterally est- uh, collateral estoppel as to that claim, it is in respect It is in respect to because we have to worry about defending against it because it could be used against us in the claim in, in the uh, Court of Federal Claims were it not for the bar, the jurisdictional bar. Now it happens that in this case case shortly after filing the initial suit in the Court of Federal Claims. Um, the petitioners then filed, filed their omnibus tort action in New York. So to the extent uh, um, the, uh, court, uh, uh, the Federal Circuit was correct in repudiating the TECON rule now, uh, uh, that issue would wash out of the case in any event. Mr. Wallace, I'm a little puzzled by the collateral estoppel argument because it seems to me that would cut both ways. 
that uh, if they, you might prevail and the other student get the benefit of it also. I thought the justification for the statute was something beyond collateral estoppel. It was the burden of defending multiple cases, whether or not, uh, uh, and that collateral estoppel would not be a sufficient protection against that burden of simultaneous litigation. Well, that, that is, is true. I'm, I'm using the collateral estoppel point to show why it is in respect to the same claim that's pending in the uh, Court of, uh, of Federal Claims, even though the one is just a particle of the nucleus of operative fact, that, that, and then the other is an omnibus suit. I understand what you're saying. Was that, has that theory of what the words in respect to mean been expressed in any cases? It seems a rather strange use of the language, very candidly, even though I understand the point you're making. Well, uh, it, it has not been expressed in any case that I'm aware of. This case is unusual factually because the two claims are not just an individual's particular claim against the government brought in two courts, but in the one case it was an individual claim and in the other it's an omnibus uh, uh, bringing together of hundreds of claims, including that one. So the, the facts, uh, as they happened to arise initially in this case, were peculiar. But I, I do think it significant that while Petitioner is concerned and, and complains that the Court of Appeals has uh, re-examined some precedents that existed, uh, uh, and they were not precedents of this court, as the Chief Justice rightly has pointed out. They were only precedents of the old Court of Claims. That both the claims well, they court were precedents, I suppose, they had nationwide uh, uh, effect, and they, they were precedents on which the business community might reasonably rely for a long period of time. That is correct, but but we do not believe that any of them properly applied to Keene's case to begin with. That was the ruling of the Court of Federal Claims in this case. That is also the understanding of those precedents by the Federal Circuit expressed in the Johns Manville case that preceded this one. Uh, petitioner takes a, a, a generous, and we think an unwarrantedly generous view of uh, one line of these exceptions called the Kasman exception, which um, uh, had generally been understood uh, to apply when the kind of relief sought in the court other than the Court of Federal Claims was different in nature from a monetary award. What you're arguing now is that he may, they may not prevail even under the rule they advocate. Well, that, but that also suggests that maybe the Federal Circuit didn't have to go so far to defeat this particular claim. Well, I think it, it did not. It could have affirmed the judgment of the uh, Court of Federal Claims on the narrower grounds that that court used. But Keene and the other uh, parties that were before the Federal Circuit that did not pursue their cases to this court uh, we're arguing for a broadening of some of the established exceptions, and I think it was within the uh, uh, proper functioning of the Federal Circuit for them to consider whether, before broadening any of these exceptions, the exceptions were sound to begin with. And uh, uh, this has been uh, hardly a, a new question if I may refer the court 
the leading article on the subject, what is still the leading article on the subject, which was published in the Georgetown Law Journal, and it's cited in the briefs on both sides, back in March of 1967, uh, shortly after each of the major three lines of exceptions had been established, uh, the author, the editors of the Georgetown Law Review uh, summarized uh, uh, the author's thesis as follows, if the court will indulge me for a moment, because it's the final sentence of this summary that is the most telling for our purposes. And I'm speaking of this article by David Schwartz that is cited. This has greater, uh, I think, authority than the Court of Claims decision. So no, but I, 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 uh, I, I think that it, it, uh, it um, shows that the problems with these exceptions were well known both to the judges and to practitioners uh, and had caused considerable disuse of the statute. But if I may just quote the editor's summary, after a careful discussion of the historical background and judicial construction of Section 1500, Mr. Schwartz concludes that the statute no longer serves the purposes for which it was enacted. He argues that the tortured constructions made of the statute in efforts to reach equitable results in spite of its wording have resulted in such confusion that it is no longer possible for the practitioner to ascertain what the statute means. In light of these developments, Mr. Schwartz urges the repeal of the section and substitution of a rule of race judicata. Uh, that is rather close to the uh, principal submission being made by the petitioner to this court, uh, although uh, obviously the author of the article, at least, thought that it would require repeal of the statute to reach the result uh, that is being advocated to this court. And that was uh, the issue that was considered in the recent 1992 hearings in which uh, Senator Heflin's bill uh, uh, to repeal the statute was not adopted by the committee. Uh, um, there was advocacy of its repeal as well as uh, the statement opposing repeal by the Department of Justice that uh, my colleague uh, adverted to. Did it ever get, not, you ever get out of committee? Uh, not not uh, the repeal provision. All that got out of committee was changing the language again to reflect the new name of the Court of Federal Claims, if I can keep up with this. Uh, now, it, it, it is also significant that several of the briefs amicus curiae that are nominally supporting the petitioner in this case say relatively little about why the petitioner should prevail, and their chief point is that the Court of Federal, uh, that the Federal Circuit uh, needlessly reached the question of whether the Kasman exception uh, should uh, be repudiated because this is not a case within the Kasman exception. And that is the view that the Federal Circuit had uh, in the Johns Manville case as well. And these uh, amici are concerned about the repudiation of the Kasman exception. They did not understand the Kasman exception to cut as broadly as petitioner claims it cut. They understood it the way we in the Federal Circuit understood it, to apply only if a different form of relief 
were being sought. Injunctive relief, for example, uh, in the district court, while monetary damages were being sought in the Court of Federal Claims. And here it was uh, essentially the same monetary award that was being sought in both courts. Um, I just want to say a, a word about equitable tolling, which we do not think would be appropriate in this case because petitioner, with notice of this statute, uh, um, deliberately decided to pursue its monetary claims uh, in three different district courts uh, as well as in the Court of Federal Claims. Well, you say with notice of the statute and you also say with notice, uh, with notice of the interpretation that the uh, Court of Claims had given to the statute, which you say would not have brought this within, uh, within any of the exceptions. Well, that's right. They, they cite basically, as we point out in our brief, only one aberrational order of the Federal Circuit in support of their broader view that the Kasman exception really meant that if you had to litigate in two separate courts, it was all right to litigate both suits. But that is what the situation of the cotton claimants was, and that was not our understanding, the Federal Circuit's understanding, or the understanding of various amici of the scope of the Kasman exception. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. Mr. Toronto, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I want to make two points, one about reliance interests and one about the effect of the Federal Circuit's interpretation. The first is that Keene certainly relied on what was a clear rule, whatever the type of relief, in separately filing its tort and contract actions. So did the government. The government in 1980 initially made a motion under 1500, and then, for tactical reasons, according to its own attorney, withdrew the motion. The second point, a stay takes care of any government interest in avoiding or securing the benefits of collateral estoppel. And there can't be any claim that the government has no way of becoming aware of other suits. Even if its own internal mechanisms don't provide that awareness, all it need do after the filing of an action is uh, submit an interrogatory and ask if any other actions are, are, are proceeding. So concerns about multiple over, overlapping litigation not merely litigation of exactly the same claim, but overlapping related litigation that might involve certain similar issues are simply not what justifies. Mr. Toronto, would you comment on what I understand Mr. Wallace's argument to be that you really don't come within the exception, the particular exception that makes the strongest case for saying Congress said you have to sue in two different forums because you are not seeking purely equitable relief in another forum and damages in this one? Let me make, make two points. First, on the has-pending question, that's a separate line of authority under which it was absolutely clear and without any kind of dispute that once the other suit was over, the Court of Claims action proceeds. We win our case under that exception without regard to the scope of claim. As to the scope of claim, Kasman enunciated a principle that said if different types of relief are sought, they're not the same claim because the cases have to be brought in different forums. It then extended that principle to its natural um, scope. Whenever two different claims had to be brought in different forms, they were not the same. And I don't know of a, of a single case in which it was restricted to claims involving um, different types of relief. Thank you, Mr. Toronto. The case is submitted.